You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. We're really fortunate to have Lyeth Dalton and Roy Huggins, owners and founders of Person-Centered Tech, joining us for the second time to talk about an important but confusing topic related to HIPAA and workforce. It's likely that you guys remember um, we've had them on before. Um, Perhaps maybe you're even familiar with Roy and Lyeth's work, but just to kind of refresh some of your, your memory... Um, Roy was an independent web developer for many years before making the transition to a therapy uh, private practice. Um, He founded the uh, person-centered tech in 2010 after helping answer a question, a colleague's question about legal and ethical use of email. His research to that answer goes into the industry's difficulties in applying HIPAA and helped him develop the kind of concepts of risk assessment and and perspective to the issues of technology. Lyeth is PCT's deputy director and co-owner. Um, as a group practice service plan manager, she's also especially passionate about helping the groups, um, helping group practice leaders be re- re- resourced and supported in navigating the security compliance process and identifying the solutions and processes that meet that particular needs of their practices. If you ask me to do that again, I don't think I could do it the same way twice. So But that's who they are. And we are so happy to have them on here. (laughs) Yeah. So clearly lots of experience that they're bringing to the table. Um, So of course, Dan and I are glad to have you back. And we are looking forward to continuing our conversation about a specific aspect of HIPAA today. To get us started, I wanted us to maybe talk a little bit about the idea of workforce and what that has to do with HIPAA. I know that that's something I've heard you talk about. So if you could just clarify what that means and what that has to do with HIPAA, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll take that one because uh, I know like the meat of this is going to mostly come from Laya. So I better jump in and early and something <laughs> school. Good call. Um, but yeah. Uh, so workforce refers to essentially. People who are part of the practice is the best way I can put it, but that's still too vague to understand. So like there's someone, it's not an employee thing because employee versus contractor is an IRS designation. That's like a tax designation, basically. Um, so workforce means someone who is part of the entity, part of the practice entity. And one way to think of it a little more mechanically is if you're a workforce member of the practice, you have to follow the practices, policies, and procedures. Like there's an expectation that you will do that. Um, And like the upside of that, the fact that you have to follow policies and procedures is that regulators can say, ah, you're regulated by the policies and procedures of your practice. So the practice can, you know, basically figure out what you're supposed to do. The the practice can decide, you know, what PHI should you be looking at? You know, what kind of access to information should you be having? Uh, They're supposed to make reasonable decisions about that. But it is up to them to make that decision and decide, you know, what you're supposed to do to mitigate risks and things like that. So like a workforce member of a practice is someone who just works in the practice and can do what the practice needs and and is the response. Basically, like they're the responsibility of the practice when it comes to maintaining regulations like HIPAA. Clinicians do have some individual like uh, need to comply with HIPAA, by the way, because HIPAA can also apply to the individual. But that's a separate thing from being a workforce member. 
Like if you're a clinician who's a workforce member of a practice, your primary thing is what you need to do as a workforce member, because the practice should be covering pretty much everything related to your HIPAA compliance. Um, if something comes up that covers you individually as a clinician under HIPAA, it should be covered. Your practice should already have a policy or a procedure or, or some way of uh, addressing that issue without you having to address it yourself. Although certainly we should all be aware of that we become personally responsible in addition to the practice being so. Um, but as a workforce member, that really should be the main. This is as opposed to, for example, a business associate or a business associate is a person or a company, an entity, as you might say, that has a relationship with the practice where they do something that involves the handling of PHI. Like the business associate does something for the practice that the practice needs done by someone else, like an expert. And the process of doing whatever that is, is supposed to involve handling PHI. And so they become what's called a business associate, a very vague term, unfortunately, not very specific. So I like to say HIPAA business associate to be very clear, right? And at that point, you know, there's, there's various things you need to do there. But the primary thing is you need to have a HIPAA business associate agreement executed with that entity, which is a person or a company or something. That's why, you know, all your online services, your practice management systems, your email, all this. You have business associate agreements with those companies. If you hire someone like a biller, like that's a good example of a difference between a workforce member and a business associate is like, if your company like hires someone as a biller who has like a billing company, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm hiring Roy's billing company. Not, as opposed to I'm hiring Roy Huggins as a workforce member. He's not a workforce member. He's, you know, he owns this billing company and we're one of his clients, All right? So we're going to pay Roy's company to do the billing for our practice. And Roy's company does everything himself. We don't have to worry about it, right? And that's that's like a classic definition of a business associate because it's not our responsibility directly other than it's our responsibility to make sure we didn't hire somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, you know, and it's, it's going to violate HIPAA on our behalf, right? But it's not our responsibility to like tell Roy, tell this biller how to practice or how to do their business or how to run their operation, right? We The business associate agreement is them agreeing that they're going to do all that in a way that upholds our HIPAA responsibilities. Mm -hmm. That person's a business associate. You know, no matter how closely you work with them, they're a HIPAA business associate. They're not your workforce member, right? So the workforce member would be would be your responsibility, completely under your purview, right? And so that's a workforce member. Often they're employees, but they don't have to be in, in the sense that HIPAA doesn't care. But the problem is there becomes a conflict there where if, if someone is not an employee, but rather a contractor, the things they have to do to, to be a workforce member in a compliant way may have some conflict with what the IRS wants contractors to do. Yeah. So I yeah, really want to make sure that people are getting this. Yeah. So we have this idea of who is the workforce, and that's one thing. And mm -hmm. we have business associates, and that's a different thing, right? And yeah. that workforce is not necessarily about who is an employee or an independent contractor. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And that your workforce member can be an employee or an independent contractor, but there might be special considerations that you have to think about based on your state um, and those guidelines and, and paying yeah. attention to potentially any conflicts. Exactly. Can you I, that's say the, <laughs> yes, that's the, the classic contractor conundrum as we like to, to put it in terms of HIPAA and employment law classifications are that 
HIPAA wants every party that is handling protected health information to be authorized to do so through the nature of the relationship being defined appropriately, basically. So workforce are authorized to be handling the protected health information that they have been given access to because it's been deemed appropriate because they are within the practice, they are subject to and governed by the policies and procedures of the practice. So the practice has this mechanism in place whereby they are ensuring that their workforce are upholding the applicable HIPAA standards in the course of their work and in the course of handling PHI, that's the responsibility of the practice. Which is also a lot of responsibility for whoever is managing that practice, right? One, to make sure that these policies and procedures are in place or trainings are in place for the workforce, but also to know um, what things they may or may not do depending on, you know, their stay and is someone an employee or someone an independent contractor. Exactly. And then business associates, like we clarified, are outside of the practice. They aren't subject to the practice's policies and procedures because that doesn't make any sense. They're a a separate actor uh, and they have their own policies and procedures, but that doesn't mean that they aren't subject to HIPAA. It's just the mechanisms kind of governing that are, are different. So we get into the the contractor conundrum with HIPAA and employment law classification because of what the IRS refers to as factors of control. Because having someone subject to and governed by your policies and procedures, that is by very definition, a pretty significant factor of control. And under the the IRS looks at 20 different factors of control for determining if someone is appropriately classified as a contractor or not. Many states take an even more kind of stringent view of of, of factors of control and use a, a different threshold called the ABC test. And basically under that, if you are requiring how work is is done to to what standard what tools are used as well and so on that means that those are significant enough factors of control that that person is not in fact a contractor and they should be classified as an employee so even though hipaa doesn't say anything about employment status There is a conflict between what is required of HIPAA workforce and what is permissible for contractors. So how do we then navigate this and make it possible to have contractor clinicians in a practice and keep everything copacetic between HIPAA requirements and not running afoul of employment classification? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how many people are listening going, what? What did they just say? Well, um, I, and also, the, by definition, legally, what you're describing is a contract, right? Now, you can be yeah. a contractor and have to follow a practice's policies, but you can't be told, like you said, you can't be told how you're going to do the work if you're a therapist. So the end result is what you're concerned about. And so I get what you're saying, and it makes total sense to me as the lawyer, 
But I also say, right. no, that on when that the reality is where the rubber meets the road, what's happening in reality versus what's dictated on in paper and policy is that the majority of people who are signing BAAs, business associates agreements, are going to be contractors, are they not? Would you not agree with that in, so, in, in most cases? You mean as as clinicians? Yes, yeah, as, as clinicians. Yeah, as, sorry, sorry, as clinicians service or providers. service providers. Right, correct. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm um, providing um, some sort of technology where you're, I'm going to be storing data that you have um, mm-hmm. that's that's pr- protected health information. Um, I would have access to that. I would need to sign a BA, but that's typically a contract relationship. So that's what yes. it sounds like to me. That's what you're you're you're, st- you're stating. Correct. Am I right. understanding so- that correctly? Right. That's that's a a contract relationship with a service provider, which absolutely does play into the person-centered tech model for having a practice with contractor clinicians. So clinicians who are not employees, but who are contractors. Mm -hmm. But here's where things get really interesting. The Mm -hmm. clinicians as the contractors are not the business associates. The practice is the business associate. So the directionality is flipped from what most people, when they're first hearing these kind of um, terms and different roles being defined, would default to, Mm -hmm. is thinking, okay, so the clinicians are providing a service, a contracted service to the practice by seeing clients for the Mm -hmm. practice. Well, uh, part of why that's problematic actually goes back to the ABC threshold that increasingly states are using for determining employment classification. And under the ABC threshold, basically, if the work that a contractor is doing is part and parcel, like the, the very purpose which the organization they're contracted to work for provides, they cannot be a contractor. They must be classified as an employee. So that should make it a moot point, right? But no, because if the practice is a service provider to the contractor clinicians, then we can reconcile all of the different legal requirements in terms of employment classification and what HIPAA wants and needs in order for relationships to be appropriately defined and for there to be basically legal instruments and mechanisms in place for defining parameters of responsibility and liability. And I think all of these things that you're saying are just a reminder about how many entities govern clinicians and practices. We're talking about HIPAA's guidelines. We're talking about the state's guidelines. So just making sure it is a lot, right? right? Um, And as I was saying earlier, I remember the first time that I heard Roy in a training video talking about Uh, workforce and he defined it. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like, thanks, Roy. And then he continued to say, well, and then sometimes it can conflict with these other guidelines that you have to know about in your state. Mm -hmm. And as he continued to talk, my brain went mush, 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 mush. And, you know, so it can be really very confusing. It's a lot of information. Absolutely. It's definitely confounded by the fact that you have to take into consideration, like it it makes more makes the most sense if you can keep track of which authority is saying the thing that Lyoth is telling you about in this sentence mm-hmm. or this half of the sentence. 
you know, like this half of the sentence is about the IRS or your like <laughs> division or whatever of your state. This other half is about HIPAA, you know, right. like, because like, and that's the challenge is like, we're you know having to try to differentiate, like the, you know, HIPAA doesn't care if they're contractors, you know, they just, no. if they're your workforce, you need to, you need to do what you do with workforce. But then like the like labor department or whatever, or the IRS says, well, but those things you have to do for HIPAA, that looks like an employee. So those aren't contractors. So HIPAA find that they're contractors. The IRS find that they find their contractors until they get HIPAA compliant, basically. It sounds like there's a delicate balancing act here, essentially, yeah. is what practitioners exactly. are constantly having to be aware of. Yeah. Well, luckily there is a model that actually makes it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. And what is that model? <laughs> <laughs> that is what we refer to as the managed services organization or uh, our kind of common parlance, actually the reverse contractor model in which the practice is the business associate to the individual clinician contractors. The practice is subject to HIPAA, both as a covered entity in its own right and as a business associate to the contractors. Contractors are individual HIPAA-covered entities and they are utilizing the practice as a service provider who's essentially providing ease of practice services. And what those are comprised of can vary widely. There isn't like a set rubric for for what that has to be or what that looks like. In many instances, the practices that are utilizing this model, the services that they're providing can include the practice management system, intake coordination, admin and reception, that that sort of thing, sort of a whole suite of services, be either material or personal kind of resources and support that help the individual clinician run their practice. Well, and again, I'm sitting here going, and how do the two of you immerse yourselves in this information all day long? <laughs> We are strange human beings. We've kind of established this recently. (laughs) So how do you approach it if a clinician comes to you and says, you know, I want to have contractors. I do have employees. You know, let's start with one scenario where they're like, look, I work in a state where I can have contractors. How would you um, advise that client then to set everything up in the best way? What does... What's the way they make sure they're they're covering their bases essentially so they're doing this the right way? Mm-hmm. So if it is copacetic with the particular employment law classifications that apply to a practice and, mm-hmm. and they want to utilize the contractor model, mm-hmm. then basically we put a couple mechanisms in place to facilitate all of that. Mm-hmm. And and that is primarily consisting of that business associate agreement, okay. the directionality of which is that the practice is the business associate, the right. practice like is the about. service provider, contractor is listed as the HIPAA-covered mm-hmm. entity. And then paired with that, a terms of service agreement. And that terms of service agreement really becomes the mechanism by which we can define the parameters of liability and responsibility and what is required, what 
otherwise would be ensconced in policies and procedures, really, but without it being in policies and procedures in such a way that it becomes problematic for the employment law classification. So the our terms of service kind of template includes defining that the individual clinician is the HIPAA covered entity is responsible for their own HIPAA compliance. They must have their risk analysis and their own policies and procedures that any devices that they utilize to access practice provided systems that are, that contain PHI are secured according to HIPAA standards. Cause really that becomes the biggest area of risk exposure uh, for the business associate in the practice is mm-hmm. if people are accessing systems that they're providing to all of the contractors that contains everyone's PHI and those devices aren't aren't secured and a, a breach results, which then they've been kind of the um, the gateway for. Well, I was going to say, let's just pretend there are, I don't know, maybe one independent contractor or maybe there are several independent contractors out of practice, right? And mm-hmm. but they're with this practice that is the business associate, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't know how to do this HIPAA stuff. Like this agreement says that I'm going to have my own policies and procedures. Ah, how am I supposed to do that? What would you recommend then? Hey, go to personcentertech.com. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be the thing. I, actually, a really important thing there that, um, I mean, there, there are some side effects of doing this that are actually really awesome. Uh, but also mm-hmm. scary. Like one of the reasons this came to our attention as a thing is that so many practices that work with contractors have decided to leave HIPAA compliance in this vague gray area where each party thinks the other one is doing it. Yep. And like, but they all know that that's what they're doing. They all know it's not happening because they're just assuming it's the other party's responsibility. Uh, and then it just doesn't get done, which uh, uh, we are learning more and more as we work in this business is basically the worst thing you can do. Like it's yes. even worse than just setting it up incorrectly. Yeah. Like even if the way you set it up isn't quite compliant, as long as it's reasonable, you know, like, you know, it's not, doesn't mean you won't get in trouble, but you'll get a lot less trouble than if you basically, you know, if you have a data breach or a complaint and an auditor comes around and says, you know, what is your setup? What, what are you doing? Who is responsible for what? And you sort of go, I don't know. I thought they were. That actually is big trouble. That's a very big problem. Much worse than saying, well, this is how you set it up. And the auditor says, well, that's not quite compliant. You know, like, you know, correcting you is much easier on them than, than saying, hey, you weren't even trying to be reasonable. Right. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. unfortunately is a situation a lot of people who work with contractors get in and they're aware of it and they're not sure what to do. They just don't know what to do. That's the problem. So they'll leave it gray. And this model actually gives you a very clear delineation of who's responsible for what. Like mm-hmm. the practice is responsible for the services it provides and it must maintain the security of the PHI. Uh, that that it's handling on behalf of the clinician. Mm-hmm. The clinicians are then responsible for everything else, which is their own HIPAA compliance. It's exactly the same as when I go sign up for my practice management system, or I'll, I like to be specific. I, I have Google Workspace, you know, because, you know, Person Center Tech constantly recommends that if you work with us, you probably got to get Google Workspace. So you, you probably have Google Workspace, you're using it in your practice because you have a business associate agreement with Google, right? So it's legit to do that. I'm not responsible for Google's HIPAA compliance, and Google's not responsible for mine. This is super clear. Like you're establishing the same thing in mm-hmm. a practice use this model. Like the practice is responsible for its compliance and the clinicians are responsible for theirs. The contract clinicians, right? Contract clinicians. Right, yeah, right, right. <clears throat> exactly. And that's super clear. There's really no confusion. The reason for the terms of service is just that 
um, the reality they're often like when the contract, you know, it, especially pre-COVID, a lot of practices that do this would still have like a, a an office that everyone works out of. And so they're sharing the Wi-Fi, for example. So at that point, you're, you know, you, the business associate, are giving this, are supplying this Wi-Fi access to all these covered entities. Um, because they have access to that, they actually have some opportunities to hack it, right? They they are an opportunity for weakness. And so you use the terms of service to tell them, hey, you need to take care of these things. You got to make sure that we don't get, the whole thing doesn't get hacked or screwed because you made an error or were careless. Mm-hmm. The problem there being, unlike with workforce, where you can have a whole nuanced set of consequences if they violate policies, right? And if a workforce member violates a policy, the first thing you do is have a conversation with them about and remediate and try to get them to fix it, right? right. Termination is way down the line, usually, unless they're really egregious, right? If it's a, a contractor, the only thing you got is terminating their contract. And so that's the reason for the terms of service is that you can put things in there that are policy-like, that are HIPAA compliance related, you know, to protect, to, they're meant to protect you, the practice from data breaches that are caused by your clinician. But the clinician, but the only recourse you have is to terminate their contract, which is a far more ham-fisted than when they actually are working for you as an employee and you can do workforce stuff, like step up things and do all kinds of remediation. To that point, and, and this has come up when I've consulted clinicians, um, what would, you know, somewhere to come to you and say, well, then why, why have clinicians? Why, why not just, why, not, why have contractors? Why wouldn't I just go to W2 model and I don't have to worry about any of that? Is there any benefit to having a setup where you have cl- uh, uh, clinical um, contract therapists under this model that we're describing? versus w2 or is it always better to go to the w2 route well it depends on, i mean honestly like you may be running a group practice because you're good at the logistics mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. you're like i figured out how to manage my favorite practice management system like i learned from pct like to the a really solid s- s- like like selection of services mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. practice management system google work workspace iplum phone service boom boom i've got them figured out i can just expand the heck out of this operation um, but that's what I'm interested in is the mm-hmm. like providing and also I do billing really well. And I got a person who does billing and they bill for all our clinicians, mm-hmm. you know, like this is a smooth operation. We've got good marketing. Um, I'm not interested in the aspects of covering like a clinic of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm interested in, in, in supplying and creating like a resource and a, and a commonality for clinicians to come join in. Mm-hmm. Right? And we make profit more than there are because we take a cut of whatever they bill usually is often right. what you do. All right. And so like, and they get to just, you know, have everything taken care of and have this support system underneath them and just see their clients. Everyone's pretty happy. Yeah. Right. But that's, you know, if, but if you want to run a system where you're running a clinic and you want to like, you're like, I, I want to run a clinic where we all do DBT or something like that, mm-hmm. like a client population. And we're all doing these certain trainings together. That makes a lot more sense to do W2 and have okay. employees. Because you want to be clinically guiding what people do and how they do it, which is very much an employee kind of status. And also you want, in that kind of situation, you want everyone following certain policies and procedures because mm-hmm. you have a way of doing things, in which case it makes more sense to get W2 to employees, treat everybody as standard workforce and sort of do the classic. Method. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that in terms of which model is going to be a better fit for a given practice, it very much comes down to the vision for the practice, like the purpose or the unique function that that practice is designed to be filling. 
and what the the goals are for the the practice leader, whether that be a team or an individual. And like Roy said, for some folks, they did the hard work of figuring out what kind of combination of pieces really smoothly facilitates having and running a practice. And maybe they found that to be a real struggle previously. They know their colleagues struggle with it. And like, I just want to help people be able to focus on client care because that's why we became therapists, not to deal with all this other stuff. Uh, Like what a headache, who wants to do that? So let me kind of pay it forward and share the resources I've compiled, the knowledge I've gained and make it just easy for other clinicians to do what they love. Or another way that we've seen a lot of contractor structure practices get established and kind of evolve is the organic growth from a solo practice to a multi-clinician practice where someone, you know, had a full caseload and then (laughs) had a longer and longer waiting list and said, I want to find a way of being able to get these people's needs met and get them care and brought on another clinician uh, in order to help with that. And then it just kind of grows and grows from there. So that's a a common way that, that that occurs. For a practice leader who is really passionate about creating a company culture or Mm. practice culture, the employee model is definitely um, a better fit. And we've seen a whole spectrum of folks, but it's great that there are two models that can, can work and can meet those needs and that there are clear mechanisms to be able to put in place to make each of those models work respectively. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, it's got to be done this way or it's got to be done that way. And what I hear you both very clearly saying is, "Ah, it depends, right? It depends. (laughs) And it can be done both ways, right? And it can be done well and correctly either way. You just have to know which one is going to be the best one for your practice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like, Melissa, that you have spent enough time working with us that you know that at some point, Roy inevitably will say, it depends. As an attorney, that's that's our pretty much our go-to line is, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, in your guys' opinion, um, you, know if you touched on a little bit, but is there in your mind several specific uh, mistakes or pitfalls that people who are doing this or trying to set up these practices and trying to figure out how to do this the right way that they consistently seem to be making. Is there, you know, top three that you see just consistently always happening here? I mean, is it something related to how they're doing the BAAs or is it something how they're kind of structuring these practices? Um, Have you guys seen anything that's consistently just over and over again a problem? I'll just say the first one, which uh, I'm going to channel Eric Strom, our attorney and counselor friend from Washington. Uh, which like he says it all the time in our group practice office hours, like the biggest mistake is just not, not clearly defining. Mm-hmm. Like, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not even just saying like, that's a mistake to make. I mean, it happens really frequently. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's just not clearly defined. Why? Well, cause I'm a clinician. I'm trying to help us do this clinical thing. That's happening. Clients are coming, they're getting care. They're getting better. Everyone's happier, healthier. You know, what's wrong with that picture? Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, we just haven't, in terms of regulatory issues and logistical issues, we just haven't clearly defined what all the edges are. 
um, that actually turns out to be a significant risk and one that grows as you get bigger. Mm-hmm. That makes uh, sense. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the kind of practice in which the parameters of responsibility haven't been clearly defined. And so everyone is kind of holding their hands up and, and figuring that everyone else involved is going to be taking care of things and meeting those responsibilities. And then it can devolve really quickly when an issue arises and nobody wins. And I think it also, even if things don't go materially awry, it just can generate stress and anxiety for, for a lot of people. And so while, yes, it's a little bit of a process to clearly define things and put the right mechanisms in place, mm-hmm. it really is to everyone's benefit. The other common pitfall that I see is that practices will decide to go with the contractor model because they want all of the HIPAA responsibility to be on the clinicians mm-hmm. and and figure that the contractor model means that the practice itself does not have HIPAA responsibility and is not subject to HIPAA. That is <laughs> not the that is not the case. It is not possible to actually set it up in such a way where that that is the case. But if if there is a a misconception that if you have contractor clinicians, they're entirely responsible for HIPAA and you don't have a part in that, or mm-hmm. that you don't need to have a documented risk analysis or official security policies and procedures. That's that's a grave mistake as well. I'm literally speechless. I know Dan's mouth is like hanging open right now. <laughs> literally, I'm, I'm rarely speechless, but that got me. <laughs> yeah, man, you should see some of the... Like, like, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, like in that case, like just as a clinician, I can understand where they're coming from, even though it's wrong and, da- and dangerous for them and for their clinician. Yeah. That's dangerous uh-huh. for everybody. The whole thing. Absolutely. Is like I can get where they got there. I can totally get where they got there. Right. I can see how it naturally got there without like too much blame other than just playing. Oh, hey, you need to be a little more diligent in your research. Right. Mm-hmm. I've seen people set up services for like online services for clinicians to use where they just don't think about that. Like, you know, someone who sets up like a calendar and scheduling widget thing and just have no awareness that they have to comply with HIPAA when they do that. It, it's, it happens. It's definitely a thing that happens. And like, as clinicians, the reason I think it's super important to say that is that we as clinicians have this assumption that if someone comes along and they're operating a business, that they know all the things they're supposed to do and that they're doing them. You know, and if like, it seems like we're hunky-dory and they've got everything covered, we go, great, they've got everything covered. Um, and it can really, that can really backfire on people pretty badly. Yeah. And not necessarily a pitfall, but something that I've, I've seen practices get into a position where they are, do have an awareness of the kind of classic contractor conundrum, the, in terms of employment law classification. And so they'll say, we just won't we can't have them be subject to or governed by our policies and procedures. So we're just not going to have policies and procedures because that's too, too sticky have, have seen that happen as well. And that's because they're at that point, there hasn't been an awareness that there is an alternative model that can 
reconcile the issues and and make things copacetic. Right now, someone's listening to this podcast and they're probably <laughs> either freaking out or they're overwhelmed. So, uh-huh. <laughs> or, or both. So what what's your recommendation? So if I, I'm a practice, you know, practitioner, I'm sitting here listening, I'm like, wow, this all makes sense to me and I need to do something about this. In addition to obviously contacting you guys, which is what they should do, um, but are there some initial steps they, they should do, you know, right away? Like what they can, what can they do right now as they start to try to get this figured out? You know, like I said, we definitely should give you you give you guys a call or send you guys an email. But are there things they can start to put in and implement as you know they're contacting you or you know um, or while they start working with you in, in advance of that? Does that make sense? Am I- yeah, absolutely. The main thing is honestly that we have a, a free resource, which is a whole presentation we did on uh, basically considerations for structuring your practice for success, considerations for contractors versus employees, in which we get into the nitty gritty of this model and for the mechanisms that make having a contractor structure practice work. Um, and that's a free free resource and training. And then it also includes a written explanation of this model to sh- use in sharing with your employment attorney mm-hmm. <laughs> to get their their support and and sign off on using this model. So that's a great place to start because it's it's important to understand the model correctly why it works basically what what are the factors that make it work and what's the conceptual framework behind it and then that also makes it possible for when they reach out to us and I I have a conversation with them Mm -hmm. it -hmm. saves me a lot of words and I use enough words as it is if you haven't caught on to that fact by now so (laughs) it's it's beneficial in that way Yeah. (laughs) yeah And then the next piece I would say is because there may be a number of contractor structure practices listening to this Mm -hmm. who did have that inclination that they need some sort of mechanism in place to define relationship and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And they did execute a business associate agreement, but that business associate agreement had the directionality flipped. So that the contractors are listed as the service provider, as the business associate. Mm -hmm. You can switch that around as a kind of easy first piece of just getting all these ducks in a row. Right. So and what you're saying in that case is you're just basically going back to your this business associate agreement you had in place and you're just kind of flipping the 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 parties around and changing some things there. Right. I understand. Exactly. But that, and that actually that cleans up a mess. I mean, if honestly, when clinicians are a business associate to the practice, it's messy. Like that's a very it, messy it doesn't thing. work. It's, it's <laughs> not it's not what the structure of business associates was intended for. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't do it. I mean, okay, they're business associates. So this means this. Okay, how does that relate to? So that means that the client I'm seeing is the practice's client, and you're bringing me in as a specialist to work with them for you. Um, okay, what happens next with their records? What happens next with um, can I bring them with me? Like the, uh, and I'm actually even talking about the simple stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. but when, it, when it goes the other direction where this, where the practice is the business associate, they're just providing basically practice management services mm-hmm. to the clinicians. Then all the boundaries are real clear. It just becomes crystal clear all around exactly who's, who's responsible for what, 
you know, what a client's relationship with the whole entity is, it all becomes real. Now, yeah. Lyeth, you mentioned, um, you know, making sure that you're consulting with your attorney, your employment attorney. Now, and this is actually a question that someone asked me. Uh, I do actually have a couple of lawyer friends who listen to this podcast occasionally, apparently. Um, and one of them actually asked a question, which I thought was really astute. And they said, okay, so, you know, does that mean that you have to have, as an attorney, you have to have a business associates agreement with a practice if you're working with a practice and there's PHI being transferred, you know, back and forth. And so I, I know the answer, but I'm going to want you guys to answer that question because I know that's going to be a question that people have. Funny you should bring this up because this actually just came up in the last week with the practice that, that we work with. Interesting. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. This our, is not planned, by the way. <laughs> no, I'm just taking a moment. I should dance oh, the perfect. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> right. So basically, it depends on what you have in your notice of privacy practices to, to a certain extent. That was the applicable answer for for the client that was asking this question of us. But yes, if a party is outside of your organization as the HIPAA-covered entity and you are disclosing PHI to them, it is necessary to have authorization to do so in one form or fashion which can either be that it's related to, it's considered TPO or treatment payment operations and it falls within that scope, right? That Mm -hmm. then makes it a authorized disclosure. Or if it's related to responding to a complaint or legal action, if your notice of privacy practices includes the description that you will disclose in such an event, then you are good to go. Or if it doesn't fall into either of those two categories, it is necessary to have a business associate agreement because having that business associate agreement is what makes it uh, permissible to be disclosing PHI to someone outside of your organization. If your attorney friends are listening, I want to tell them all, be careful because it is my experience that attorneys engage in information transmission practices and, and exchange practices that are not HIPAA compliant. Oh, yeah. So if you are a business associate to a, a covered, HIPAA covered entity, mm-hmm. for example, attorneys want to just use email for everything. And there's an extremely good reason for that. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you just want them to email that document with the, the complaint that's got the client's info on it, right? Like, you know, that's got to be trans- transmitted securely. You're under HIPAA now. As soon as you sign the BA, you're under HIPAA now. And, and so you got to be real careful with that because a lot of the questions we'll get with regards to working with attorneys um, are about questions about the attorney wants me to do <laughs> this with some information, which is not HIPAA compliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so having awareness, like often that's though, like it's often the attorney, like the counsel of an opposition to counsel in a case mm-hmm. or something, like they're not their business associate. And so now the sitting being like, I have to, I have to have a secure means of getting this information to you. I can't just yeah. email. Right. So like, yeah, hopefully I just, you know, that's a little piece for the. Well, it's interesting because that was one of the first things we did when I first set my practice up. Right. And I use G Suite because I love it. And um, um, but the thing is, is that um, I have um, software or application, whatever you want to call it, that does that. Right. Um, Because of that concern is that if a client does have to send me something, for example, that's that is does have PHI in it. We want to make sure that it is being transmitted 
in a way that's encrypted and secure because of that fact. Um, right. So it's a very, very absolutely at, at point. I will also say, though, that's true for anyone, it you is. know, <laughs> attorney or otherwise, yeah. that you are transferring information from people. Forget that. I even had that happen early this week with someone else who was like, send me this over. Um, and it was a kind of a more adversarial situation. I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, I would not send this over to you until we can figure out a way to get it to you in a secure manner, because there is always has to be thinking about that fact that you are taking information that's protected from one source to give it to someone else. There needs to be a way to protect that <laughs> in transmission. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, I actually really, Dan, please tell your attorney friends that as much as you can. <laughs> because a lot of our clinician friends occasionally run into that. And like sure. it's frustration because it's often, often is like opposing counsel who does it. Oh, yeah. All the time. It's the worst. Those are the worst. Uh, just from my personal view. I'm not, I'm not, not, not speaking to, it has no um, bearing on the opposing counsel. But in terms of knowledge, there is a lack of knowledge. And honestly, that's one of the things I've run into personally with, with other attorneys is very few attorneys who understand this area of law adequately enough to know these things. And so, as you said, they're just like, okay, I'm going to send you an email. I'm like, nope, that's not going to work. It really does. And that's one of the things where me being in this area for me personally, both when I first was running and now as I kind of run my own practice where I am counseling mental health practitioners, um, this is constantly something that we're aware of and addressing. But I run into all the time with opposing counsel and other outside attorneys you know, especially when there's subpoena requests and things like that, I'm like, yeah, we're not just going to hand these over to you by email. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, but I suppose it's useful to say, like, you know, for the clinician's sake, uh, maybe you can answer this, Dan. It'd be useful for everyone to hear this. What, though, like, what about, if, say, the court wants information? They say you, mm-hmm. you just have to go submit it through our, our normal, you know, our system that we use for, for entering things into court. Mm-hmm. At that point, that's a different game, ball game, right? It is a very different ballgame. I mean, I think at that point, that's where you're going to have a discussion. Usually, if you're involved in a litigation matter um, and your attorney's having to release files or something like that, yeah, I still think you still have an obligation to make sure that information is transmitted securely. If, the, if it can be done electronically, great. But if not, then you're going to have to, in my opinion, you're going to have to find a different way to do it. And I know there are some jurisdictions, um, and Maryland has started using them too, that you can do sometimes electronic filing, but if you're dealing with a mental health client or you're dealing with a healthcare client, this is an additional consideration that you absolutely have to take into account. That's different than like your personal injury client or your, you know, a tax matter or things like that. Um, it is, it's a really serious consideration. And and that that has come up a couple of times for us as well. But I often find that it's unintentional, but I find that I sometimes piss off a lot of attorneys because they're always yeah. like, what? <laughs> Like, seriously, just send me it. I'm like, no. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I have to, we have to do it this way because I, I, we can't do it any other way. And it's just, uh, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it, you guys know as well that it's an obligation. You, you can't, this is one of those areas where you cannot bend or, or flex on this. Thanks for answering that. I appreciate it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, I, th- I think that awareness and that you're speaking to right now is indicative of the fact that you are truly aware of the HIPAA security rule and not just the privacy rule, Mm -hmm. which is something Mm -hmm. that um, is kind of commonplace with a number of attorneys is that, you know, the privacy rule classically is attorney domain, 
which makes perfect sense. We are happy to let you all have it. <laughs> right. <Correct>. Just <laughs> as I'm sure you're happy to, to leave the security rule to security and compliance firms like, like us, but they do intersect. And I've seen so many times a lot of practices coming to us and saying, well, we do have policies and procedures because they've gotten a set of things from their attorney, but -hmm. those are specifically privacy rule oriented Mm -hmm. policies and procedures, not all the security rule policies and procedures. So not that this is related to the contractor consideration (laughs) conversation, (laughs) but while we're on this, this topic, uh, just want to say like that how important it is to have precision around what's privacy rule, what's security rule, mm-hmm. and not kind of conflate the, <laughs> the yeah. two. Absolutely. Well, and I think this just goes towards running an ethical practice, right? I mean, these are the things where like your own, um, and I've had this conversation with clients where I'm like, you know, you know, your ethical guidelines for your license. Well, these, this is no different. And, you know, as Melissa and I often say on here and in general, I advise the clients, if you don't know, then you need to find talk to someone like you guys who know, who can tell you what exactly you need to be aware of. Um, because that's just part of, if you're running a practice, you want to start a practice, This is th- these are the things you need to be doing. Yeah. And so there's a lot of information for people to be thinking about it here. You know, we're talking about privacy role, security role, workforce, business associates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for anyone who's like, I know I don't have that stuff in order but they are really chomping at the bit to find you and to get in touch with you. Where can they find you? How can they reach you? We are findable at personcenteredtech.com. And if you go to the group option in the top navigation menu, that will take you to a landing page that allows you to get more information and in fact, schedule a informational resource call with yours truly. So honestly, the favorite thing in my role is getting to talk with practice owners and identify together what your needs are and how we can support you in meeting those needs. So I love having those chats. So if you're thinking that might be helpful, please do uh, head on over to personcenteredtech.com and schedule a time with me or just click around and see all of the resources we have, including a lot of free resources and that webinar on the Structuring Your Practice for Success uh, contractor clinician considerations. Yes, there are a lot of resources on the website. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Lyeth and Roy, I really appreciate you guys coming again on our show. Um, this yes. has been phenomenal. Um, and I just think that this is the kind of things that people need to know. You know, this is one of the reasons why Melissa and I want to start the podcast is so we can have these conversations because they're not happening. And I think there's a lot of ignorance, not unintended ignorance um, out there. So I think it's really useful to have you guys on here talking about this stuff. So we're really appreciative of you. And um, thank you again for coming on. That wraps up our conversation for today. We again, of course, as always, thank you guys for joining us. We hope that you found this um, as interesting as we did. If you are looking for us on the web, you can always go to our our website. Um, You can go to the Facebook. We do ask you to please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you, whether you have a question, um, if you have a comment, if you have your own anecdote, anything like that, please reach out to us. But other than that, we will talk to you soon and be well. 
Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.